You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. Amen. Thank you, guys. And you can be seated. Well, good morning. How's everybody? Good, good. Appreciate it. If you have your Bible this morning, you can go ahead and open it to the book of Joshua, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, which is chapter 1 in its entirety. So Joshua, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, as you're getting your Bible or your device ready. Oh, and by the way, if you need a Bible and you don't have one, you'd like one, there's one here to my right, there's some here to my left. Feel free at this time or at any time during the service to get up and grab one. You can keep that. That is our gift to you if you don't have one. Um, but, but as you're turning there, I want to give a quick plug for our covenant partner meeting this afternoon. Um, and so if you are a regular attender or, if, or, and or a regular attender that desires to be a covenant partner or currently a covenant partner, we have a meeting this afternoon at 4 o'clock that is going to be very informative. And I would strongly recommend that you guys come. Um, we have some exciting things going on in our church um, you can just look around and, and tell that. And so um, we'll be communicating to you guys some adjustments that we hope to make to accommodate um, the, uh, the amount of people that are coming and also to have some organization around serving and some more structure around those particular areas. And so 4 o'clock this afternoon, there will be child care for 4 and under. Okay, So if, if you have kids and you're concerned about those younger ones and, and, and them uh, you know, being rowdy or whatever the case may be, which just a little side note, I wouldn't really be too worried about that. A lot of us here have kids, and a lot of kids we have are rowdy. Um, if, you, if your kids aren't rowdy, I, I don't want to tell you to go find another church because <laughs> maybe, maybe your kids will influence our kids, but it's highly likely it's going to be the other way around. Okay? No, but seriously, um, never be concerned about having children in any of our gatherings. Please, please don't. Um, uh, we love kids, and uh, we see children as a part of the church today not as just the future one day. We don't see them as a liability. Um, we, you know, kids are kids, and so we want them around, and uh, we feel like they're a blessing from the Lord. But there will be child care for those of you that would like to have that. It'll be right over here next door for four and under. Four o'clock this afternoon. We'd love to see you. And so I'm going to read chapter one in its entirety. I encourage you to read along with me. It, it will not be on the screen, but if you don't have a device or a Bible to look at, then you can listen Closely, This is the word of the Lord for us today. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for... You shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, 
but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, Prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, and to the Gadites, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them. Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him, shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we consider it a privilege to have your word before us today. Lord, as we embark on this journey through the book of Joshua, we ask for spiritual blessings. We ask that you would teach us as only your Holy Spirit can teach us through the proclamation of your word. Teach us more about yourself. Teach us more of what it means to be yours through these ancient stories. Grant us confidence and faith and belief, Lord. We of all people, those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, have an eternity that is secure. It cannot be stripped. We have an inheritance that is forever and accomplished through you and you alone. Therefore, these words to Joshua are words to us. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For we have the promise of your presence, even in a more truer sense than Joshua experienced. And so, Father, thank you for this moment. And we pray that you are honored and that you are glorified this morning. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Joshua is often overlooked. And I don't mean the book Joshua. I mean the man Joshua, which is pretty common for any one who follows a particularly prominent individual, um, successors can be overlooked. Successors can be in a situation that is almost impossible to succeed because of their predecessor. And we all know, most of us maybe know, if you've been with us through the book of Exodus and through Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we know the vital part that Moses played in this the, the story of Israel's redemption up to this point. Well, well, Moses has gone on. Moses has passed away. And now Joshua is the man that the Lord has appointed 
for leadership and as a category, successors are genuinely obscured by those who come before them. You just have to always deal with, are they comparing me to Moses? Are they comparing me to the other guy? Are they comparing me to the other gal? And so therefore, I think Joshua has seldom been given the full credit that he deserves. And I'm going to say a really strong statement here. But once we journey through this book, I think you, you, you may not agree with me wholly, but you'll at least see where I'm coming from. Because I think Joshua is perhaps the greatest man of faith to ever step foot on the stage of human history. And, he, and here's why I say this. His entire life was a straightforward story of a man who consistently put one foot in front of the other in quiet compliance and obedience to the words of God. Like if you ask Joshua, like, how did you make it happen? His response would have been one day at a time, like one moment at a time. And that's what we see in Joshua's life. We see a level of consistency that I longed for personally. He was just consistent. He, he wasn't perfect, and we're going to see that. But Joshua provide, uh, provided the consistency of leadership that the people of God needed in order to do what God had for them to do. So in this first chapter, I think we see four realities that shape this entire journey. As, as most of you know, we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible here at Covenant Church. And so we're going to be in Joshua until spring, Lord willing. And today we're going to be in chapter 1, starting in the whole chapter. But we see four things. I'm going to go ahead and give them to you if you want to jot them down. And these will be on the screen as we walk through them individually. In verses 1 through 4, we're going to be reminded and see the Lord's faithfulness. And these are realities that shape this entire journey and therefore shape this entire book. First is the Lord's faithfulness. Then in verses 5 and verse 9 and verse 17, we see this reality of the Lord's presence. Verse 7 through 8, we're going to see the Lord's word as another reality that shapes this journey. Then in verses 12 through 18, we're going to see Israel's unified obedience. So one through four. Verse one, Moses has passed. This servant of the Lord is gone. Now Joshua is the man to take over. He has been prior, he has been Moses' assistant for years. But Moses is dead. In verse 2, it says, Now therefore arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Not a lot of time has passed. And we don't know exactly how much time has passed from Moses' death, or say his funeral, to this moment in Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. But one thing that stood out to me that we can see in these first few verses Moses has died, of course, and, and we can't forget all that Moses has done. And in fact, if you look back at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 34, look at verses 10 through 12. I'm just going to skim through those, just right there to your left. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his servants. Verse 12, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. A modern-day understanding of how it might feel to be his successor would be whoever happens to be the poor soul that takes over after Nick Saban leaves. Yeah. 
But Moses has gone on. And God's message isn't this to Joshua or to the people. It is not. Now, weep. It's not, wait. It's not, okay, look, Moses was the man and he was my man for a while. Now you guys need to spend some time trying to figure it out. God's message immediately, it seems, after the death of Moses to Joshua and to the people are, rise up and cross the river and take possession of what I have promised you. Now, what does that matter, and why does this matter towards the Lord's faithfulness? And here's why. The Lord hasn't changed. It's the same Lord. The leader has changed. The people have changed. The circumstances will change, which is true for all of our lives. But it's the Lord who remains the same. It's the Lord who is constant. It's the Lord who is consistent. This this is not a story about Moses. It's not a story about Joshua. It's not even a story about the people of God. The center piece of this story is the Lord. And so God's faithfulness remains. Listen, friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, the Lord's promises, they don't disappear at funerals. They don't die there. The Lord's promises endure. The Lord's promises are immortal. Leaders change, people change, circumstances change, but there's one thing that remains, and what remains is that the Lord has made promises to his people, and that's what they're about to receive, exactly what the Lord had promised, because the Lord is faithful. The Lord is the faithful one in the story. We see Moments of faithfulness in the life of his people. We see moments of faithfulness in the life of Moses. We see moments of faithfulness in the life of Joshua. But the one who is always faithful, every time, 100% of the time, batting a thousand, it's the Lord. And so the Lord is faithful. Second, we see this as a reality that shapes this journey. Not only the Lord's faithfulness, but also the Lord's presence. Look down at verse 5. It says, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Now look down at verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I don't know about you, but when I like visualize this scene of Joshua, this warrior that's about to take over and lead the people to this victorious journey into the promised land, like I picture this jacked dude that's got triceps and biceps and traps and like, and, and maybe he did. Maybe that's the way that he looked. Maybe, you know, you know he, he just had that picturesque vision of what it meant to be a warrior, but considering the number of times that the Lord says, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, don't be dismayed. And even at the end of the chapter, even at the end of the chapter, the people say back to him, hey, hey, be strong and courageous. What's up with that? I mean, he he ends up being strong and courageous, but it seems that at, at the onset But there's fear. There's concern. There's doubt. And keep in mind his closeness with Moses. For the most part, Moses taught him everything he knows. 
He saw the man whom he had great respect for die. That's tough. But he also saw the man that he had great respect for fail multiple times. It is, it's, it's certainly implied. It's, it's not directly stated that Joshua lacked courage and therefore had fear. But I do wonder, what would bring him courage? What would squash his fear? The Lord doesn't tell Joshua, hey, buddy, tighten up. Be courageous. Tighten up. Hey, read some books on positive thinking and conquering your fears. On top of that, Joshua, after you read all of these books that I recommend to you, you need to do CrossFit for at least one whole year so you can be cool like the rest of these folks and strong. He doesn't tell him any of that. Nothing's wrong with those things. You know what? Hey, like, read your books. Take care of your body. I mean, if that was noted, it, it still would be fine. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. But the sole reason and the only way that Joshua is going to be strong and he's going to be courageous and he's not going to be fearful, he's not going to be dismayed, is for this reason. The Lord is with him. That's it. No, none of those other things, none of those other things mentioned, and you could add so many things to that that we would say would make him stronger and more courageous and more able to do the task that's before him, and they might not even be bad things. But eventually, every single human effort falls short. And we need more strength. We need more hope. We need a courage that, that comes from something outside of ourselves. And that is what the Lord offers and grants to Joshua. It's his presence. Can you relate? Do you read this and think, this is all well and good, but I'm not Joshua, right? I mean, let's be honest. Like, we're not fixing to lead God's people over the Jordan. I, I don't know how many of you have read through the book of Joshua, but we're going to see some pretty remarkable stories like we talked last week. Like, the first five chapters, they're going to get us hook, line, and sinker. Fascinating, thrilling stories of God's faithfulness, in God's power. And so there's a threat that we read this and we go, that's great, but that's sort of for Joshua and it doesn't apply to me because I'm just normal. I'm, I'm, I'm just a normal, I'm just an average Joe. I'm just a normal guy. I'm just a normal gal. Well, I want to show you in Hebrews 13 in a way of application before we move on. In Hebrews 13 verses 5 through 6, the writer of Hebrews says, keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, now here's where he quotes, Old Testament, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. And so the writer of Hebrews concludes 
with this promise of the Lord's presence, verse 6, so, therefore, because of this promise, because of His presence, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's important to point this out in the New Testament because this promise is the promise that is to be applied to every single Christian. Now, the writer of Hebrews applies it in a unique way in that he promises the Lord's presence and reminds the believers that you do have the Lord's presence. But watch what he, like like in this context, what he does with this promise is he says, here's a primary way for you to fight sin. And even these specific sins of the love of money and discontentment or covetousness, remember that you have the Lord. Like you're obsessed with money? You've... You've poured your whole life into having more money. You're not content with what you have, which goes right along with this love of money. And heaven knows, look, look, we all need money. But his point is this. Why would any Christian, why would any Christian obsess themselves with what they don't have when they actually have all that they need in the abiding dwelling presence of the Lord. And so this promise here is applied to every Christian. It's it's not only for Joshua. It's not only for the Israelites. And not only does it help us fight sin, but this promise also brings us the greatest comfort, strength, and courage that we can fathom. There is nothing more essential if you're a Christian. And what I mean, just for clarity, by Christian, is that if you have trusted Jesus Christ alone, for your salvation. In his work on the cross, he died in your place. He lived in your place. He was buried in your place. And praise be to God, he resurrected in your place. Like your faith is in him. That, that's what a Christian is. And so if you're a Christian, there's nothing more essential that you or I will ever hear. There's nothing more practical that we will ever hear other than, I am with you. And I'm not going to leave you. Isn't that what we want in every relationship? We just want to know you're not going anywhere. Right? Like even if you find out all you could possibly find out about me. We have this angst and we have this anxiety that we're just going to mess it up. Like I'm going to do something or say something that's going to make you leave and you're not going to be with me. And I'm thinking of the people that I love the most and heaven knows I've done things that probably warrant, hey, I'm done with you. And so we have this freedom and reality in the relationship that we have with the Lord by his initiative and by his design as he promises his people, let go of that burden. I'm not leaving. I'm always with you. And I'm never going to forsake you. That's really, really good news. Not only for the Israelites, but for us today. So, first we see the Lord's faithfulness. Second, we see the Lord's presence. In verses 7 and 8, we see another reality that shapes this journey. And it's the Lord's word. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. Look at verse 80, doubles down. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, 
but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Now, we can all agree that there was a written law of Moses and that it was this written law of Moses, not some natural intuition. Joshua didn't have some esoteric experience. like He, he wasn't like God revealed something special to him outside of everything else that he was revealing. It was the revealed word of God through Moses that was to be his God. Something that stood out to me this week, and I don't know if I'll be able to articulate this in a way that it's meaningful to you, but I've, I've already mentioned that Joshua knew Moses. He knew Moses personally. He knew his strengths. He knew his weaknesses as a man. He knew that Moses was a sinner. He knew that Moses made mistakes. Nonetheless, immediately after Moses' death, Joshua accepted his writing more than just the writings of a mere weak man. He accepted it as the writing of God. These writings did not need two or three hundred years of incubation to be sacred. That wasn't required. As far as Joshua was concerned, the law of Moses was Scripture. And this Scripture was the Word of God. To me, that's a wonderful apologetic for us today as we look at these very old ancient writings and we see that immediately, immediately, Joshua and the Israelites saw the law of Moses, the first five books of our Bible, the first five books of our Bible, saw those books and that writing as not just writing from a mere man, but the actual word of the one true living God. And so two things to take away from this. I don't think I have a slide for this, Scott. First is this. When the law was given, God's people understood what it was. And immediately it had authority. That, that's basically what I was trying to say in the, in the last two or three minutes. Immediately, the law of Moses had authority and was recognized as the word of God. Second, we see this in verse 8. God did not withhold the formula necessary for obedience to his word. Look back down at verse 8. And if you underline or highlight, you might want to get this. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall, and here's what I would underline, meditate on it day and night. Careful, consistent meditation leads to obedience. I don't, I don't think that surprises any of us. It shouldn't. Whatever we carefully and consistently read or listen to or learn, we apply. That's kind of the way it works. It's a byproduct of our efforts and our consistencies and our meditations. And so the Lord doesn't withhold how to be prosperous and how to be successful. It doesn't mean everything's going to go your way, but it means that you have a right view that this is the word of the Lord. Therefore, because it's God's word to me, I'm going to carefully and consistently meditate on this word. And what careful, consistent meditation produces is obedience. It produces obedience. A lack of concern, a lack of study, a lack of time in the word 
just does not lead to a respect of it or an obedience to it. A lack of attention leads to a lack of obedience. That's the point. And, and, and that's what the Lord's communicating to Joshua, and that's what Joshua is to communicate to the people, is to meditate on my word and take my word seriously. And, and so the secret to life, it, did you notice, like these, like if you look at the end of verse 8, a lot of us, especially in our North American culture, for when you make, um, for then you will make your way, all right, so here comes the coffee mug, like prosperity gospel, like go-to right here, right? For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Like that triggers something in our North American brains. I want to be prosperous. I want to have good success. And there's certainly nothing wrong with those things, but he lets us know where this type prosperity and where this type success comes from. It's not found in a mystical experience. It's not found in some warm, fuzzy whatever, some new gimmick or latest social media trend. This prosperity and this success comes from a focused attention on the words that God has spoken. It could not be more clear. This is a truth that is timeless. It's not just something that would be true for the Israelites at the beginning of Joshua. It's true for us today. So we've seen the Lord's faithfulness as a reality to shape the journey, the Lord's presence as a reality to shape the journey, the Lord's word as a reality to shape the journey. And then you have this last part, this last part of chapter 1, where we see this last reality that shapes the journey, and it's Israel's unified obedience. 12 through 18, 10 through 18, seems like a section that just holds little significance, right? You sort of read it and you go, mm. I mean, I get some of it. I'm not 100% sure like what's going on with it. We'll, we'll, we'll jot this down because I want you to be 100% sure what's going on with it. Jot down Numbers 32, verses 1 through 27. So Numbers chapter 32, verses 1 through 27. And there we see why in verse 12, Joshua addresses the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. The cliff note version of Numbers 32 is this. These two tribes and this one half-tribe are mentioned here because these tribes, before they entered the land, came to Moses and said, Hey, look, we have a lot of cattle, and there's this land that's east of the Jordan. It's not even a part of the promised land that we would like to go ahead and get. Basically, this is what their request was. We want to detach ourselves from the people of God and we want to set up camp in this area east of the promised land or east of the Jordan. Seems logical, seems fair, seems like it shouldn't be a problem, except for the fact of how Moses responds. Moses responds by calling them a brood of sinful men. What's wrong? What's going on? Here's what Moses was not okay with. These tribes were content. Now listen, brothers and sisters, please. This is so applicable. These tribes were content with leaving the people. They were content with separating themselves. 
Well, for a guy like Moses or a guy like Joshua, like, what does that mean? Because, like, you know, you would expect the leader, the general, the commander to have this overall vision, this broader picture of the, of the story. And, and so he says, no, 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 you're a brood of sinful men. This is actually an incredibly selfish motive. And the reason that it's selfish is because they were going to need all hands on deck, all hands on deck in order to take the promised land. And so he literally says to them, so you mean to tell me that you're going to go sit in your green pastures while your brothers and sons and cousins and uncles are fighting? No way. Moses tells them no. No. Well, they do find a place of compromise, and their compromise is this. Moses says, okay, look, you can have the land east of the promised land, but you've got to fight with us. And they agree. Well, when we pick up in Joshua... In verse 12, when he addresses the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, that's what that whole deal is about. So look at 13 with that understanding. Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. That's the land that they requested, east of the promised land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, but all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers. And listen, this is key. This helps us understand in what? And shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. Moses' response lets us know that this initially was a selfish move. And I have no idea if they intended on it being selfish. More than likely, it was just a massive oversight on their part. Like, they're just thinking about what's best for them. And listen, like, that's the problem. That's actually the problem. Because they're a part of the people of God. And their decisions, as personal as they may be, as right as they seemed, their decisions, good or bad, affected the group as a whole. Let that sit. In our culture that has this idea of this rugged individualism, privacy fences, and separation personal freedoms, and y'all that know me know I'm all about it. But what we have to understand as the people of God is that our decisions, our decisions are not, even though we might think they're made in a silo, they impact all of us. I think there are huge implications here for us and it's that there is no substitute for unity among God's people. It doesn't mean that we have to feel all lubby-dubby. I don't know if that's even a thing. But you know what I mean. All the time. But it does mean that we must care about one another. We must care about one another's fears. We must care about one another's failures, discouragement, well-being, and successes, and I asked myself this, and so I'm going to ask you, like, do you? Do you care? Think of Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing, Paul says, this is New Testament, 
from selfish ambition or conceit. Essentially, that's what Moses is confronting with these two and a half tribes. He's going, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, I understand your logic here, but you got to understand something about the bigger picture is that you're doing this from selfish ambition and conceit. And you're actually selling out to the people. But in humility, because that's what it takes. I mean, we agree. It takes humility to go, you know what? I have the freedom and the right to do this. I'm going to pump the brakes and consider others as much as I'm considering myself. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And verse 4 might be the banner. Y'all have heard me say this over the years. Good chance you don't remember, but I have been saying it. That flies over what it means to be a Christian. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. These truths, these realities, shape the entire journey. That the Lord is faithful, He's promised His presence, He's given His word, and it is paramount that Israel remain unified around these things. In closing, two takeaways. First is this, takeaway from Joshua 1. Our assurance is rooted in God's preservation. Say it this way. Our security rests in God's keeping power. How in the world was Joshua to actually be strong and courageous? How in the world were the people of God to actually be confident? Considering their history and all the mistakes that they'd made and their lack of faith, how are the people of God supposed to be confident? And the only way that I can see, the only way that they can be confident is in the faithfulness and the power, the keeping power of their God. And it's still true today. How can we be confident that we will be saved? Is it in our efforts? Is it in our obedience? Is it in like one another's efforts and obedience? No. It's rooted in God's preservations. Philippians 1.6 says this. Paul says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you... All right, are you all ready for your amens? Go ahead and cock and load. Load and cock, whatever. Yeah, here we go. Listen, and I'm sure of this, confidence, hope, courage. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jude 24. He says, now to him who is able, isn't that good news? Now to him who is able to keep, preserve, to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Our security is in the commitment of God to produce in us the faith and the obedience that we need to endure to the end to be saved. That is our security, period. No caveat. Our hope is in 
the Lord. When we say that, when we pray that, when we sing that, when we write that, like that's literally what we mean is that our hope is in the Lord. Now, but the Lord always uses a means and the means that he uses to preserve is our work to persevere. James 5.20, and I have to hurry. James 5.20 is a good picture of this in my opinion. James says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. Notice, notice who the Lord uses as a means. All right, so here's a picture of how God preserves and keeps his people. One of the means that he uses is this unity that we have together, this idea that we are as concerned about one another as we are ourselves. And what that looks like practically is that the brother or the sister, the subject of the verb here is you. The, the believer who goes and gets the one. It's the believer who literally physically goes and says, hey, no, you come back. It's the believer that God uses to go get the one that has strayed. And he says, whoever does this, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering, it's the believer the Lord, using the believer to save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Do you see how vital Christian unity is among God's plan of redemption? Like this is how he does it. He sends you to get me. He sends me to get you. But so often we just sit on the sidelines and watch the train wreck. Or if we engage ourselves, we avoid the gospel at all costs. No. God will keep us. One of the ways that God uses to keep us is we go get the brother or sister who's wandered. Sometimes they won't come back. Sometimes they won't come back and you go, well, you know what? That's when I lean heavily into God's sovereignty and I pray and ask Him to do what only He can do in their heart. But that doesn't stop me. That doesn't stop me. It can't stop me from understanding the means that God uses to bring sinners back is often, it's often one another. And so what we'll see in the story of Joshua and Joseph and whoever can come back, what we're going to see is that this book isn't primarily a story of Israel's conquest of Canaan. It's not going to be a story primarily of Joshua's strength or even of Joshua's leadership. This is going to be a story that, just like every other Bible story, if you have eyes to see, this is going to be a story about the grace of God. It's going to be a story about what God has freely given His people. And He's going to do it in the most weird unlikely, radical ways so that at the end of the story, nobody's patting Joshua on the back. Nobody's saying, Israelites, you're so smart and you're so strong. At the end of it, everybody has to say, praise be to you, Lord, for your strength and for your faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, with the number of people in this room, there's just no way to know exactly how to close it out in, in a way that's applicable. Um, but I know this. I, I know that you know every heart.
and you have every person that's here. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.